As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Glossy adverts for Sondico shin pads, the ill-fated magazine created by Jamie Redknapp and Tim Sherwood, every quick-fire footballer interview ever, and the eternal debate, shoot or match. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Right now, you can enjoy The Athletic for just $3.99 a month. Enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod and sign up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of the Football Clichés pod. I'm Adam Hurry, and with me, first of all, is The Athletic's James Moore, former deputy editor of 442 magazine. So perhaps towards the tail end of the golden generation. So you're you're an expert for this, surely? I'd like to think so, yeah. I mean, I don't think there are many people better qualified to ramble on about football magazines for 40 minutes on a podcast than me. Do that, we shall. Um, alongside you, in a virtual sense, is the least surprising owner of every edition of World Soccer magazine from 1992 to 2017, Michael Cox. Why did you stop in 2017? What happened? So I didn't collect them as I went along. It was when I was writing a book about European football, I decided I needed to just do all the research I could and then I got to 2017 and then that section of the book was about Premier League so I had enough information there but I may go back and complete the last three years if only because there is space on the end of my bookshelf never give up never give up we're going to get knee deep into football magazines uh, in a short moment before that the adjudication panel James uh, Simon Young uh, writes into the pod and says why are there not more eponymous adjectives in football we have no problem with Shakespearean and Hitchcockian what about Beckhamian, Messian, or even Louisian? 
They might be useful and impressive shorthand for commentators and pundits. Football cliches, can you help? Can we help? I mean, Louisian sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, I think we saw mm. a fairly good uh, example of Louisian defending last night in that, I mean, it, it wasn't actually... But that was just him. You yeah, can't yeah. be your and own. It wasn't even terrible. Can you be your own? It wasn't really even terrible, but it was just incredibly unfortunate. And that sort of sums him up, doesn't it, really? I, I don't think... Yeah. He's not always entirely to blame for what happens. He's just a sort of like sitcom character who is kind of put upon really isn't he that that mm. kind of textbook facial expression that we've seen from him so many times he's like yeah, unlucky elf from the far show he's just, <laughs> he's just always in the wrong place at the wrong time but always does seem to wear that expression after every single red card of how has this possibly happened to me in terms of other eponymous adjectives that we actually do use in football i think beckham-esque as simon suggests or sort of suggests is, is the only one i can really think of michael i, I mean to get to the point where you you kind of warrant this description, you'd have to be doing something fairly consistently and fairly conspicuously over a long time. That's the only criteria I can think of. Yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult with adjectives, I think. I actually think verbs is slightly easier to fit it in. I mean, a goal like Mohamed Salah scored his first one of the weekend against West Ham. I have sometimes used the phrase, he cut inside and robbed it into the far corner. Because oh. I think people know what it means, but it's also quite ugly. So, uh, yes. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. But, uh, I mean, I agree, Louisian just sounds like a, a proper word, doesn't it? So I do quite yeah. like that. Yeah, I'm not dead against the verbing. Uh, it, I think it lacks the kind of academic heft that you get from just sticking Ian on the back of, uh, of any footballer's name. Um, but there is, of course... Lampardian, uh, as we, we all know by now, um, his interview technique, which is well established on this podcast and elsewhere. But thanks to Kevin Mullen, who for some reason, James, was lurking on Soccer AM's Facebook page on a post from 2017, has found perhaps the ultimate example of the Lampardian transition. I never really wanted to start doing the coaching badges, so I kind of thought then my eyes on that and I wanted to concentrate on playing. So as soon as I, I finish, I'd like to take it up. Um, and maybe be a manager. But it's hard because I only want the Chelsea job. Yeah, so. <laughs> and you're getting it, mate. No. And you're getting it. I'm only joking. I, I, will no. try, I, I really respect managers that go the right way about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, generally I would anyway, and I'm a Chelsea man, so of course I wouldn't have to move out. Yeah. I'm just going to throw it out. Roll it in the Stamford Bridge. Exactly. But no, I, no, I would love to. But again, that's not, I don't want to frame myself that I'm the next Chelsea boss because it might be a different route for me. It might take me a while to get there or something like that. But of course, in, in the dream, it would be to manage Chelsea one day. Yeah. James, everything, everything, all the ingredients are there. And, and it was a double. A double. Yeah, I was just well. going to say, a double transition. It's not often you see that in this day and age. I think he's matured a little bit since then, isn't he? He realises that he, he can't overdo it, you know, at his age, you know. He, he can't. Uh, be twisting and turning all over the place. But it's good to see mm. that he set the standard there quite early. I, I know. Yeah, everything after that has just been a complete afterthought. He nailed it in, in circa 2016 and, uh, and yeah, set the bar, which no one else has ever managed to, to match. Um, moving on, Michael Cox. Um, on Tuesday night in the Premier League, the phrase from bad to worse perhaps got its defining airing. Um, before we get into the various credentials of either bad to worses i want to set some strict criteria here what what do you think it should mean and when should we be using it well i suppose last night was was a good example when when there were no positives from the game and when a side was already in a difficult situation and something got even worse i mean i think with southampton their second red card everyone kind of just felt a bit sorry for them because it was such a mm. harsh one whereas arsenal's i mean leno's mistake was quite comedy wasn't it 
And therefore, I think that's yep. more of a bad to worse situation, personally. I agree. I mean, it has a couple of distant cousins, James, from bad to worse. You have the, well, that just sums it all up, which is not necessarily, well, I mean, it is a, it is a game state related well, phrase. That's something quite it, different. Something- In an Arsenal context, that's quite different, isn't it? That sums it all up. I mean, that's quite the opposite, really. Thinking, oh, I know yeah. what you mean. Oh, yes, the, the famous Tony Adams goal. But, but, but yes, generally speaking, we're talking about sort of an, an errant shot or a pass that goes out of play. And then you have uh, what it's just one. It's just not their night, which I think is just a shot going off the post from, you know, two yards. So they can be set aside. But James, if we look at the, the individual examples from Tuesday night, Arsenal, 10 men, then 2-1 down and then had their goalkeeper sent off. That That to me is textbook. It's gone from bad yeah, to worse. Yeah, that that's kind of tragic comic. Where I think with Southampton having lost a game nine nil last season, to then do that again, I mean, there was sort of a certain air of inevitability about it. But I just think it was more tragic than comical. Really, I mean, you might not yeah, agree I mean, with that. It, if you're a Portsmouth fan, I'm sure you found it hilarious. But I think most people were just kind of slightly uncomfortable that it was happening again. And also, the, the worst thing about it was it was inevitable from the second Bednarek went off as well. Mm. I think everybody thought it would be nine nil from there, not not eight nil or ten nil. Nine nil specifically, but then then there's a kind uh, of it's interesting, Adam. You say about it not being their night because sometimes you listen to footballers or pundits speak about this, and after the event they say, "Well, actually, you can just write it off as one of those nights, like as, one of yeah, those. as if like a nine nil is actually easier to get over than a five nil because <laughs> it becomes it becomes so ludicrous. You you almost laugh at it rather than mourn the the loss. As as a tangent, there. I mean, after at what point? How bad does the scoreline have to be where the thrashing gets to the point where the players just simply do not want to go out straight away and play again and, and sort of, you know, shake that result? You just, you just want to get back out there. I reckon after 9 0, you're probably all right for a couple of weeks. But yeah, I think Southampton's situation, Michael, was just so extreme. 10 men, then 4 0 down, had a goal disallowed to even get slightly back into the game as a consolation, then 9 men, and then lose 9 0. And then throwing in the fact that they'd lost 9 0 before. We're way beyond from bad to worse, even in a meta sense. So, But what I did like was Jan Bednarak becoming the first player in Premier League history to be sent off, give away a penalty and score own goal in a single match. I'm amazed that hasn't happened before. I'm amazed. Yeah, especially considering that a lot of the time when you concede, you know, if you get a red card, you're conceding a penalty. So sometimes those two go hand in hand, albeit mm. that gets us into a bit of a refereeing debate. But yeah, I'm surprised that hasn't happened before. I mean, of all the thousands of games, you think someone would have just been a little bit unlucky. But apparently not. Mm, poor Jan Bednarek. Um, the final note on on this um, dramatic night of Premier League football, James. The Old Trafford scoreboard, now the most photographed football scoreboard in the world. Well, I mean, well, RIP the Olympus Stadion. I've actually done a little bit of scientific research for you here, Adam. I think you'll probably Please. be quite happy to hear. Uh, yes. So I've trawled the archives of Getty Images, our, our resident Hello, image provider, um, <laughs> and can confirm that the top three in English football that I can find are Anfield with 202 results, Old Trafford with 250, and then Wembley with 284. Now, oh. Wembley, I don't know if that includes sort of Freddie Mercury and stuff. I've not looked all the way through. I know it includes Port Vale 2, Genoa 5, which sounds like... Why would it include Freddie Mercury? What was the ser- what were the search terms? Uh, Wembley Stadium scoreboard. But if that if there was a big oh, right. Freddie Mercury thing at, at uh, Live Aid or whatever, then uh, Live Aid, sorry, I should say, then yeah, he'd be on the scoreboard, wouldn't he? There could be kind of uh, concerts and stuff, is what I'm saying. 
Yeah, involved. I'd, I'd like to think that the Getty caption writer wouldn't use the word scoreboard for a concert. Maybe um, it displayed the total number of donations up to that point. People were comparing it. <laughs> then it would oh, be yeah, like Freddie Mercury's five famine no or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I suppose, yeah, I suppose you've got. The 1966 World Cup final, which were kind of the board, genuine boards being put up for the school, which yeah. I, I don't, I suppose should count, you yeah. know, by definition. I, but yeah. I should say, I really like the Anfield scoreboard because it's on that kind of right angle corner in the corner of the ground. Mm. It's quite unique like that. It's quite nice. Mm. What? I just, I feel like Old Trafford should update its scoreboard by now, um, given how famous it is. Well, maybe we can expect uh, Rochdale to be up there soon. I don't know whether you've read the stories this week about... Um, this uh, support who passed away and had been a really dedicated fan for many years and raised lots of money for the club and left his entire estate to the club. And with this couple of hundred thousand pounds that the club received from his estate, they are buying an electronic scoreboard. So oh, nice that touch. will become, I would hope, quite an iconic, well, certainly an iconic part of that stadium. And yeah, maybe people will appreciate that story. I certainly did. It was a really nice read. Yeah, that, that's a that's a that's good solid thing for your um for your life's gatherings to go towards, definitely a scoreboard. Last item for the adjudication panel this week, um, Michael. Uh we've had a new addition to the, the well, mini pantheon that is the Premier League defenders nicknamed after walls. Emerson Tom of Sheffield Wednesday and Chelsea relative fame was nicknamed Paradow. Uh, in fact his Wikipedia page insists that he can actually simply be called that um, other than his name. That translates as the wall in Portuguese. Robert Huth, the Berlin Wall, uh, which may contravene the criteria we, we will shortly discuss. And then um, the latest entrant is Liverpool's Ozan Kabak, who has been nicknamed the Turkish Wall. Not buying not buying some of these, frankly. Well, hasn't Kabak been in like some incredibly poor defences over the last couple of seasons? I think I'm right in saying he's kept one or been involved with teams that have kept one clean sheet in the last 23 Bundesliga matches. So, a very fair point, because Simon Rizko writes and says, simply unacceptable to be described as a wall when part of a defence that concedes more than two a game, in my opinion. Uh, I, I kind of agree, but I mean, um, usually, James, it's just a physical stature thing. You are a wall because you're large, you play in the heart of somebody's defence and you're from a country. I think that's pretty much the only criteria that people seem to use. I think, I mean, yeah, it suggests you're... Physically imposing, I think, more than particularly wide and like the, uh, able to <laughs> able to keep out any shot that comes in. Doesn't actually imply any talent either. It just implies that you're, you, you know, top yeah, of obdurate blocks yeah. obdurate exactly. Well, welcome to the Turkish Wall, uh, poetic as you are. Let's see how that turns out. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. But let's talk about the main reason you are both here, which is football magazines. And James... There is something very much at the heart of this subject that needs to be thrashed out straight away. And it's not quite as... It's more clear-cut than I expected it to be. And it's shoot or match. To be honest, when I was a kid, I don't really remember kind of favouring one over the other. I, I Broadly mm. speaking, I think I preferred match. It was just maybe a little bit punchier. It felt like it right. had a little bit more... Uh, I don't know. It, it, kind of, it kind of felt like it got to kind of... It covered issues a bit more, maybe. It felt like it was a bit newsier, perhaps. I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really remember Shoot kind of having news stories as much as Match did. 
Am I wrong? In my mind, in my in my battered memory, I just assumed that they were the same thing. I just I just assumed they were basically interchangeable. But Michael Cox, I put it to our potential and existing listeners, and seventy six point three percent of them said that Match Magazine was better. Mm. Are they right? Yeah, I was definitely a matchman. I, I remember them being quite different. I remember shooters being quite slightly serious, a little bit square, if I can put it that way. And Match okay. Match Magazine was a little bit... I mean, either you understand this reference or you don't, but I considered its humour to be a little bit like Pop World, as in the Channel 4 television show. Yeah. In the sense yeah. that it was, it was clearly made for... Irreverent. Well, yeah, it was made for children, maybe young teenagers, by adults who basically wanted to have a little bit of a laugh. And it became this kind of like piss-takey humour, kind of about how boring a lot of footballers were. And they had kind of, mm, they yeah. had this kind of, these these subtle digs that were were kind of mocking, but also not too much. Whereas, yeah, when I went to shoot, that felt a little bit more like what your parents would want you to read because it's like improving <laughs> your literacy. It's a slightly fascinating um, landscape between the two of them, James, over the years. Shoot was the first to come about and sort of, laid its marker down match came afterwards and sort of struggled to get a foothold and then in the 90s they took this deliberate decision to do as you both say take this kind of slightly more irreverent tone and by 1996 match was selling nearly 250,000 copies a week a week that is that's insane i mean i can tell you categorically that is a lot of magazines to be selling yeah and that is that is pretty incredible in my in my mind the this rivalry or at least this kind of tension editorially between the two is is so level pegging that that this concept that I've j- I read about earlier that some editors um, cross the divide from match to shoot in the early nineties that's, that's like Mo Johnson signing for Rangers it, it, it's like how can you do that how can you do that you do wonder maybe it was a sort of almost like a manufactured sort of, a sort of uh, blur and oasis style you know very, you know very mid nineties. Like a sort of very public rivalry that actually benefited both parties because it just kind of drummed up more interest in, in, uh, in both. I mean, I I bought both. Yeah, and me too. I, I I don't remember ever even conceiving of the choice. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was a privileged situation. I'm just saying I I, I was never faced with a dilemma, Michael. But um, before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of that particular era and genre of football magazine, can you suggest to me who? in your mind, is the most shoot-slash-match front cover player? I'd say someone from... Maybe someone from Blackburn, because obviously they were very 1990s. At a guess, maybe... It wouldn't be Shearer, because that's almost too obvious. Maybe like a Chris Sutton or even Kevin Gallagher. I imagine that would be... Oh, you wouldn't have got Gallagher on the front of shoot. No? No way. He would have been been an inner poster, and certainly not the centrefold. Uh, so he would have been sort of a secondary option for posters. James, I was thinking sort of Ryan Giggs I was, running. J- Jamie Redknapp. I mean, I, I was there not like a mm. stage where, I, I mean, uh, this will obviously be de- entirely determined on your, by your age, but I'm sure there was a stage mm. where Jamie Redknapp was like a sort of cartoon character in Match called, <laughs> oh, possibly okay. called Napsy, or maybe. <laughs> oh my or na- God. Na- or something. I, uh, uh, the, I mean, someone I'm sure I never sure considered that us. that could be his nickname. I've never considered that someone would call him that. And yet, yet it is indeed one syllable of his name. So it, it definitely works. I mean, the more I hear about Match, James, I mean, again, it's this, this black hole in my memory because I definitely read it, but people are sort of telling me things about it, little nuggets about it. The more I hear about it, the more little characters and the little kind of oddities of it, it sounds more and more like teletext. It's... It, at that what match was the teletext to shoot CFAX. I think I think this is a perfect analogy. Possibly, yeah. I just remember match being a bit mm. more punchy and having a bit more sort of. Mm. I don't want to say it had more balls, but I kind of feel like it. I mean, irreverent is definitely the word. I think it just it just felt like it had yeah. a bit more, maybe a bit more personality. Michael, a couple of um, 
fascinating sounding elements of Match Magazine in its heyday. They had a feature called Scales of Justice, (laughs) which was a joke column in which Liverpool and England defender John Scales would apparently give his verdict on a big pop culture issue. That sounds good. I don't think that needed explaining, did it? I think we both knew what that was straight away. (laughs) Just in case. It's one of those things where they've they've thought of the pun and then devised a feature, which reminds me a little bit of... um, On Soccer AM, they had a thing called Rushton Roulette, um, <laughs> which, which is a good pun, but the game itself really didn't make for great television at all. But I mean, can I sorry? Can I just say it's just dawned on yes. me now, that, that, and I know we're going to talk about four four two in a minute. But we basically did exactly the same thing with Alan Judge, <laughs> presumably fifteen twenty years later. Is he the Irish Messi? Uh, I believe, but quite very possibly, up. very possibly. We we suggest cynically that they may have come up with a pun first and then the footballer. But I mean, Scales was part of the Liverpool Spice Boys. But I'm guessing that Jukebox Jury which featured Scottish veteran striker Gordon Jury offering his opinion on the latest musical releases, perhaps was that way around. Yeah, I'd go along with that. And again, that feels really that feels really Pop World. Pop World did a feature called mm. Lamar from Afar, where they just interviewed <laughs> Lamar across a car park. But yeah, it was good. I mean, the most memorable thing from Matt... Well, there are a few memorable things, but one was the pre-season um, little league ladders that they came where yep. you'd, you know, order your team, uh, which was great fun. And the other thing was that the weird obsession they had with Peter Fear, who was a kind of backup <laughs> Wimbledon midfield player. And I don't think it was ever really explained, was it? But they just used to have kind of made up things about Peter Fear's life. The best banter is never explained, yeah. surely. I, when yeah. I was a kid, I thought that, I, I have very vivid memories of that Peter Fear thing. And it was like a running joke and he was the butt of every single joke. I felt like a two or three year period and it felt incredibly cruel when I was a kid. But then later on, I worked with uh, a guy called Hugh Slight, who was deputy editor of uh, Match at the time. And he explained that Peter Fear loved it. And he was like in on the joke the whole time. And they, they were always in like kind of communication with him. And he was very much involved in like all of that stuff. Which, I mean, Do you it think takes the edge off a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't necessarily need him to have been sort of offended or disturbed by it. But it, it begs the question, do you think he was kind of like a Barclays, a pure Barclays player, sort of 15 years ahead of his time. <laughs> he was a sponsor of the Premier League in 1995, Carling. It, was he Carling? He was Carling. Yeah, I suppose he was. Michael has mentioned the league ladders. Um, to, I mean, it takes some discipline, league ladders, doesn't it, Michael? It, it, this isn't for the fair weather magazine reader. I mean, to me, it was kind of an unwitting training school for fantasy football in terms of bothering to keep <laughs> it updated. I mean, did were you updating the Scottish third division league ladders? No. I, I, nice to have them. Nice to have them. I'll be honest. I did um, I did the Premier League and that was that doing all four divisions in the Scottish ones absolutely not and no I actually later later on in life quite a lot later on in life I must admit I got uh, the equivalent of fridge magnets and ordered them on on the yeah again just did the Premier League but it was great fun the League Ladders was was great and also it's, it's one of those things as well where you know Match Magazine was quite irreverent and jokey but in the middle they'd have Match Facts there was literally just the yes. statistics from every game because, you know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have soccer base. So, you know, these things were providing just the raw information as well. I um, A lot of people cited match facts, James, as, as one of the kind of defining differences between match and shoot in terms of in terms of its appeal. Delved into match facts. It's way more detailed than I expected to be. And then, of course, with the context that, that Michael explains is that this is a long time ago you didn't have this information at your fingertips so this was all gold and I was aware of 
player ratings, and we'll talk about that in a second. But um, not only, but they explained the goal. Leeds 2, QPR 3 from the 1990-91 season. White 15, a free kick was headed on by Pearson and hit in by White. Hit in, not massively keen on that description, <laughs> but still, still better than we probably deserved. Yeah, it's quite hard to picture it on that basis, isn't it? <laughs> yes, hit in. But player ratings, Michael, I mean, I feel like they're a bit, they're kind of just ephemera now. We don't really need player ratings. I don't think it really adds anything to what everybody has already seen. But back then, huge deal. Like a difference between a six and a seven could crush your weekend. Yeah, definitely. And it's, On behalf of somebody yeah, else. Yeah, and again, especially because we didn't have online statistics, it was a lot more difficult to watch games. There was probably only one or two live every weekend. So yeah, if you wanted to know how you know Ian Taylor was playing for Aston Villa, then look at his player ratings it was quite interesting. How much thought do you reckon went into them though, James? I would imagine about as much thought as goes into them in the newspapers now. <laughs> <laughs> Two goals, get a nine. Star of the show, lay on a few goals and score ten. Do your job, six. Do anything wrong, five. Score an own goal or do anything that Jan Begnerick did, four. <laughs> um, fail to make it past 50, 50 minutes for any reason whatsoever, three. And then two and one, I, two, I, in, unless you're Lekeep, uh, two and one were, you know, beyond... I think in, in Le Keep, I think you get a two if you only scored once, don't you? <laughs> Pretty much. They are incredibly harsh. Incredible. Keep. This was the first thing, James, that stood out to me when I when I wanted to talk about magazines from that particular era. And I, it, this kind of interview technique has perhaps persisted in various formats. But as a veteran of the industry, please talk me through the vital elements of quick-fire footballer <laughs> interviews. The first thing you need is a, like a question about which TV programmes a footballer watches. Uh, and when I first started working at 442, sort of around about 2008, my wife and kids with one of the Wines brothers, and I can't remember which one it is. I think he's like the second most prominent one, maybe. Uh, but you know the sitcom I'm talking about, right? It's pretty good. I probably would have watched it as a young man. Uh, but ev- every single footballer, my wife and kids, we used to do this thing in 442 called uh, Boys A Bit Special. And we'd ask, it would be like, and I don't think you do this now. It was like tricks which was like your favourite, what your kind of trademark skill was. Flicks, obviously your favourite film, and Chicks. (laughs) Jessica Alba was incredibly popular in that era. Ah, yeah. We're we're definitely getting now more into the territory I was thinking of. That's quite modern. All that stuff feels quite modern to me, sort of soccer AME. But I'm thinking, Michael, I will fire off some questions to you and I I want you to give me the most Shoot Magazine mid-90s answer that you can think. Pre-match meal? Usually beans on toast, was it? Chicken, pasta, and beans. Okay. I remember reading that every week and just thinking, God, yeah. is that... I actually probably was quite um, starstruck by that, but just, yeah, chicken, pasta, and beans all the time. What music do they play in the dressing room? I will accept genre. Was it usually R&B at that point? It was yeah. R&B, yes. I mean, there is no definitive answer. This is just my opinion yeah. of what um, definitely happened. If they were asked who was the worst dressed teammate, what sort of um, answer? It, this is where the word clobber <laughs> entered my consciousness. <laughs> And I would, I would never use clobber. I don't think I've ever said it out loud, but um, only in this context is the word clobber um, allowed. I mean, it, w- it would think. usually be a 30-something defender, I would say. So if it was an Arsenal mm. player, they would probably choose Andy Linegan, I would say. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, you, you do, the answers will either be someone on the, in the squad who's really square and isn't interested in all this, or someone who's just really wacky yeah. and will come, come, come in wearing something absolutely yeah. shocking. So, yeah. yeah, there's no middle ground. And then 
James, they always used to get asked, famous person you'd most like to meet, which I think I feel like is a question that wouldn't work anymore because just of how ultra famous they are. Yeah. I, it was all paid three girls back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I can't think who, who would footballers want to meet now. I can't really, like you say, they kind of feel like they move in those circles now that, you know, if if, uh, if Marcus Rashford wanted to meet, oh, who would he want to meet? I don't know. Ah, I can't think. Who's, who's famous? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I feel like they would be so sort of media managed to say someone very sort of thought provoking, like Dalai Lama or something like that. But um, uh, Shoot Magazine's Wikipedia page handily steps in and says, throughout the 1970s, the interviewed player's answer to person in the world you'd most like to meet was overwhelmingly boxer Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that's pretty worthy, mm. isn't it? That sounds good. Yeah, it ticks a lot of boxes, ticks a lot of, you know, um, fantasy dinner party boxes there but yeah um, long live the quick fire footballer interview and I don't mean silly irreverent ones I mean proper answers anyway um, our listeners have weighed in here Michael in this eternal debate which as it turns out isn't that eternal after all because 76% of them are very sure it was match anyway Ellis James says shoot was BBC match was ITV world soccer was channel 4 <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that's pretty accurate yeah I like I like that. Um, James Ethan Henson says, match, no contest. People that read Shoot were definitely the same kids that went to the park after school, still in their uniform, and chewed their sleeve until it looked like the six-year-old tea towel. <laughs> That's quite specific, but again, yeah, that tallies with my... I just thought Shoot was a bit... It was a bit square, you know? It was... Yeah, BBC, BBC and ITV is a great analogy. Yeah, I think that does make sense. Shoot definitely does feel a bit uh, clincher, let's say. Yeah, thanks to Ethan for, for reminding me now very vividly, vividly of the concept of people at school chewing their jumpers until they fell apart. Very odd, very odd people. Anyway, Richard Fullerton says, fun fact, every single line, the only exception being some terms and conditions in Match magazine ended with an exclamation mark. <laughs> Uh, and that's definitely true because I remember it at the time. So, Richard Fullerton, you've validated my existence. Michael Ashley Patrick says, Match, purely based on the fact I won a baseball cap in one of their competitions, signed by Gabriel Einzer, Jamie Carragher, and, brackets possibly, Wayne Bridge. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's, <laughs> what a combination. That's quite, Why? that's quite late as well. I mean... Yeah. Well, that's a young person, Michael. That's the thing. Yeah, but... Uh, yes. I, I, yeah, it's still going actually, isn't it, Match? So I, I think of Match as, as ending when I stop stop buying it, but they probably got over my lack of purchasing, didn't they? James, uh, Aaron Battistini, lovely name. That's great. Um, employs a peep show explanation here. He says, shoot is savoury, Match is true. <laughs> <laughs> Which is lovely. Um, and to round this debate off, as as I say, even if it were one, Michael River Mersey FC says, "Can't we just appreciate the fact that we were around to read them both at the same time?" Ah. Yeah, yeah, that that's good. I like that. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. On to more heavyweight publications, James. 442 Magazine. 
My first question here, so the only question I think I've ever wanted to ask you about working at 442 is creating a magazine from scratch every month sounds incredibly stressful. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the amount of time I've sort of sat in a darkened room trying to work out which footballers and or managers will be sort of newsworthy and of the moment yeah. in like sort of 10 weeks, three months time. I, I mean, if I could have that time back, I mean, I, God knows what I'd do with it. Um, yeah, that is an incredibly difficult thing to work out, like on that kind of time frame. I mean, been, we were stung a couple of times. I'm sure this still happens now, obviously. There was one, one kind of pre-season issue where we got the illustrator Stan Chow. I don't know if you know his work. He does these amazing mm. kind of graphical mm. faces. And we got him to draw every single Premier League manager for the cover of like the season preview. And then I think maybe like kind of three or four days after it went to print, Sam Allardyce quit Sunderland to take the England job. <laughs> So suddenly we had 19 Premier League managers and the England manager, which, I mean, isn't the end of the world. But poor old David Moyes, who had taken the Sunderland job, wasn't on the yeah. cut. Poor, poor Moisey, poor Moisey. Quite easy to draw. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, once he printed the thing, once he sent it off, I mean, I, you know, it's not, you can't just go round to WH Smiths and add it on the front of every magazine, Adam. No, no, quite labour intensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, excuse my naivety about how a magazine is made, but, I, you know, once the previous issue goes out, do you just sort of sit there with a, blank magazine and go right what we're we doing what we're we doing for I, february I, I think some of my former colleagues would probably say that was what happened sometimes when i was there because i'm <laughs> not the most organized person but no i think the idea is to kind of be a bit more organized and like i say to have like an idea in place for two or three months time like, like looking through fixtures to try and work out whether wilfred zahar i remember doing it specifically with wilfred zahar looking through crystal palace feature, fixtures for the first like two months of the season to see is this going to be wilfred zahar's season is he going to score a dozen goals in the first two months and feel incredibly relevant in october and we didn't we didn't do that in the end, did I? I from from memory, actually, he was pretty terrible for the start of that season, so it worked out fine. But yeah, that is that is more or less impossible. It's like sort of I don't know, like landing a helicopter on a moving train, almost that to kind of predict mm. like every single element of football and, and who's going to be talking about who at what point. Michael, I mean, with all due respect to the wonderful features and and, and various little segments that appear in magazines like this, um, I feel. Oddly enough, one of the most enduring pieces of content that appears in in magazines like that are the adverts in the back. Genuinely good reading. I I mean, that's probably quite, must be quite rare amongst magazines generally to actually dwell on the adverts and really look at them, not for the purposes of buying anything, just because I find them genuinely interesting. Like, it's just nice stuff. It's just stuff. Yeah, I think especially back in the day, like now there's a big thing when a, a team launch and you kit with like, kit launches featuring grime stars or whatever. But back in the day, it would be quite a quiet thing that would just appear in maybe a magazine. And just just looking at the the kind of compilation of new shirts would be really exciting. And yeah, and all the other paraphernalia that comes with it as well. I think of Sondico as being a particularly uh, <laughs> magazine-y brand. I never heard anyone pronounce it like that. But I would also caveat that with I've never heard anyone say Sondico out uh, loud. Yeah, so. I've, who knows? Would, James, can we have the casting vote on how to pronounce it? I, I would say Sondico. But now now Michael said Sondico, it does sound good. I um <laughs> I actually researched Sondico, as they are called. Um <laughs> and they have a Twitter account that says we supply every footballer from the park to the international stage. Proud sponsors of international goalkeeper Ali Al Habsi, which I thought, <laughs> I thought was quite an obscure one to boast about on your Twitter bio. But good luck to them; they're, they're still going. Yeah, they are very much still going. One thing I noticed about sort of mid nineties magazines: shin pad adverts. James, a huge deal. Why was shin pads such a massive deal? Yeah, I don't really. Back then, you don't see. You don't see. I have never. I haven't seen an advert for a shin pad 
in 20 years minimum. I mean, this probably does take us back to the fact that none of us are reading these magazines anymore or those kind of magazines aimed at those markets. I I, I don't really remember ever feeling like the urge to buy, to like rush out and buy shin pads. Like boots, I can imagine kids wanting to buy and wanting to have like, you know, the the boots that Robbie Fowler at the time or whoever were wearing, David Ginola, Alan Shearer, whoever. But to be wearing the same shin pads as like Carlton Palmer. I mean, I... I just don't imagine ever feeling that compelled to go out and buy them. <laughs> the, the potentially sort of, this has moved into sort of legendary territory, uh, Michael. The Sondico shin pads advert that appeared in Shoot Slash Match, or perhaps even later than that, um, around the mid-90s, um, which was Brian Robson, Gary Lineker and Ian Rush, dressed as 1920-style gangsters with Tommy guns, and then opening up this kind of violin box with shin pads inside with the tagline, when you need protection. It felt like magazine adverts used to go on, like the same advert used to appear for maybe a couple of years uh, in often Mm. the same place in the magazines. There was another one, this might have been World Soccer, but there was um, one that went on for ages that I think was for Bazooka, as in the Veruca treatment, that was uh, (laughs) was Jimmy Hill's bare feet, which was always Mm. a slightly weird... You know, considering you're often reading this over breakfast or something, that was quite a weird thing to yeah. be confronted with. It's just the decline in advertising revenues is a real shame because the production centres of some of this, um, both in print and on TV, was just genuinely wonderful. And I just, I just don't think we see that sort of stuff anymore. Michael, you mentioned world soccer there. This is another... I mean, again, with all due respect to everything we've mentioned so far, this is another level up on the intellectual ladder in terms of one's outlook on football, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what this would be in the channels thing. This would maybe be like a... This is Transworld Sport on Channel 4. (laughs) Sky Arts Arts is a great analogy, yeah. I mean, like I say, (laughs) I've been through these these magazines recently and it was just an incredible resource at a time where we didn't have the internet, we didn't have all that information. And some of the names of the journalists that I just read year after year, Brian Homewood and Mark Gleeson and all these experts on yeah. African football is a different world. I must say, going through going through the the magazines recently, one of the things that stood out was the the pen pals section, which of course you would never get in the modern oh, age wow. because we can all talk to each other on the internet. But back then, I mean, I love it for two different reasons. One, I love it genuinely because I think the fact that someone from Scotland writing letters across the Atlantic to someone from the USA about football was amazing. <laughs> But I also like it in a slightly ironic way because it did turn into this uh, slightly um, almost obvious attempt at being a Lonely Hearts thing. So you'd have a lot, oh, of, right. you had a lot of letters that were like, hi, That's- my name's David, I'm 22 from Rochdale. <laughs> I'm a massive Rochdale fan. Looking to hear from pen pals around the world between the ages of 18 and 24, preferably <laughs> female. I have a particular interest in Colombian and Swedish football, and it's like you know you have to. Oh, right. you yeah. have to be really optimistic to uh, to be trying to find love through World Soccer magazine. But if anyone did, I, I'm happy to be correct. Well, if if uh, modern internet culture has taught me anything about the human condition, I like to think that all of these pen pal exchanges has ended with biased nonce, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> it, it <laughs> the discussion would always lead to that somebody getting annoyed by the other one being a biased nonce. <laughs> Um, but yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, there are other more cult corners of the football magazine industry, James. Yes. Um, 90 Minutes gets a prolific shout in the in the Twitter thread today. Not a magazine I either remember. Really? 
or have I don't I definitely never read it really uh, but I can't see why I wouldn't have done it's that that but to it, me I, of all the people I know you I, I would say you were the most likely to have read 90 minutes I know but this happens with things like dream team which I've never seen and Mike what's the stupid Mike film Bassett. Mike Bassett Englander Mike that's Bassett good. yeah that, I, I think that's surprisingly mm. quite well done actually I think it's there's a lot of kind of football cliches humour in that, actually. I think you'd enjoy it. Okay. Okay, no, that's all right. I'm, I'm not being snobby. I've just literally never seen it. That's it. But um, but anyway, 90 Minutes. What was the what was the gist of 90 Minutes? Because I feel like I've really missed out here, James. Actually, a lot of the stuff we said about Matt, I think you could probably say about 90 Minutes, but I guess it was slightly more grown up. I mean, this was, I suppose, early 90s. I don't remember buying it too often. One I vividly remember buying at the time and actually then bought again on eBay, like sort of 20 years later, was... Uh, was Teddy Sheringham on the cover in the new Spurs kit with Samantha Fox? Now, I, I'm not going to offer context on who Samantha Fox is. He's picking her up. He's, he's picking That's her up right. and she's wearing a Spurs she's wearing, kit. He's wearing the home kit Incredible and she's wearing fighting. the away kit, I think I'm right in saying. She's wearing like a Amazing purple and blue away kit. Um, yeah. And that, like, that, that photograph didn't really have any relevance to anything that was in the magazine, especially, really. But yeah. I can't think of a better player to, for the duty either. Oh, that is incredibly Teddy Sheringham, isn't it? I mean, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to get anyone better than that. But yeah, it was, it was a very fun. I mean, I think Paul Hawksby, who obviously has been on Talksport for a long time, was kind of behind that. It was a, you know, it was a really, really good magazine. I, I don't know exactly when that ended, if that's what you're about to ask me. But I, I'm really surprised <laughs> yeah. you've not read that. I, I, I would have had you down as someone who would. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what I was doing at the time. Who knows? But um, if we're going to continue this kind of football magazine versus culture analogy, Michael, I feel like when Saturday comes, the enduring when Saturday comes, I'm thinking, what, Radio 4? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was almost its own genre, wasn't it, of magazine? I don't think you could get that confused with anything else. Now, I admire how how consistent it's been. You know, it's a a very kind of principled magazine, I would say, uh, that stands against certain things. But not... But not to the point where it kind of rubs it in your face. I mean, the the, the MK Dons uh, thing that they do with the season, either review or preview every season, is about as close to po-faced as it gets. And I, I, I think it's just genuinely quite funny, the fact that they basically just ignore their existence completely. But there are, there are, there are elements of it that just, as you say, are very sort of consistent. Um, t- TV Watch, for example, is a column very early on in each edition, which is just always really, really good every single month. Um, yeah. And I encourage people to read it. It's exactly what football, how football should be written about sometimes. Uh, their podcast is really good, actually. Editor Andy Lyons, Harry Pearson, who's just brilliant, and Daniel Gray as well, is that they are so perfectly pitched to talk about football. I, I like to think of it as the, um, as the kindly uncle of football mm-hmm. cliches because uh, they talk about... Um, last week, they talked about big players and small players, and sometimes that's just all we want to talk about. <laughs> so when Saturday comes... Thank you for existing. You've made my life better. And the only reason I say that is because um, that is the only Christmas present I can think of um, for family members to buy me every every year, James. So not a plug, not an ad, just reality. <laughs> but it isn't all highbrow. It isn't all success stories. It isn't all cult favourites, James. Sometimes it's Icon magazine. Yeah, I, I had to admit, I'd completely forgotten this existed until you mentioned it to me earlier today. Mm. And this was the... <laughs> brainchild of uh, of Tim Sherwood and Jamie Renup, I believe. It certainly was. It was a bi-monthly magazine. Does that mean every two months or twice uh, a month? Two months. Every two months. Right. Thank you, industry expert James Moore. Uh, it was set up in 2003 by ex-professional footballers Tim Sherwood and Jamie Redknapp, as well as Redknapp's wife, Louise. The magazine was the first venture of Redknapp Publications Limited, and its readership was exclusive, as it was not sold in shops and was aimed at a celebrity readership. Michael, the magazine had a cover price of £6, but celebrity subscribers did not officially have to pay for it. 
How exclusive is that? Yeah, that that is interesting. I mean, has anyone ever seen this magazine? I mean, not in the flesh. (laughs) You know, just keep on refreshing eBay every couple of weeks, and one will turn up. Because I mean, you you would get a whole article, a whole podcast out of this, surely. Definitely. The more digging you do about Icon Magazine, the better it gets. I can assure you. Let me begin with a quote from a senior editorial figure. Jamie, Louise and Tim are lovely people, but they each like to control what's going on editorially. So much so that one of them will tell you to do one thing, then the next day another of them will ask for something completely different. It was a nightmare. James, if you had if you had to work under the editorship of Jamie Redknapp, Louise Redknapp or Tim Sherwood, who would you choose? Ah, uh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> I, I think Jamie Redknapp would probably actually be quite a good company. I think I'd quite like. I think I'd quite like to work for Jamie Redknapp. I think he's probably quite a good bloke. He seems quite earnest. I, I feel so. like he'd be on the ball for editing a magazine. I think um, he'd like. I, I mean, think he'd take kind of criticism and advice on board as well. I don't think he'd sort of, you know, poo-poo that. I think he'd be pretty open-minded. Sherwood, on the other hand, Michael, um, here was a here was a quote from a, another of his colleagues. Uh, Sherwood was very hands-on, insisting on proofreading and approving every single page. Tim would sometimes call meetings in the middle of the night or phone you at one in the morning with an answer to a question you had at one in the afternoon. It was very difficult to deal with. Sherwood sounds like a nightmare from start Tim to finish. Tim Sherwood sounds like a, an editor I have worked for before, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I met Jamie Redknapp very briefly once in a cafe in Portugal. Nice. And he, he seemed very friendly. Whereas I imagine Tim Sherwood would, would not be quite so friendly. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think Jamie Redknapp's is like a perfectly nice guy. Yeah, yeah, no issues there. Um, let's get into some more specifics about Icon magazine. Uh, James, this was essentially a magazine. Uh, Jamie Redknapp had spotted a gap in the market. He said, "I've read a lot of magazines, but nothing really kind of, nothing really kind of encaptured what I wanted to read about." So he set up this magazine, and it was it was essentially pitched towards footballers at first, and then sort of branched out into sort of celebrity sports people, and. Uh, Full of adverts for sort of £20,000 watches and uh, helicopters and things like that. But here's, um, I don't know how they managed to get this interview, but Jamie Redknapp went to interview Frank Lampard. Wow. I'm meeting one of the odds. That's incredible. I know. Um, lovely interview. Um, this is a little excerpt for you. As I sat by the window in Scalini, our family's favourite restaurant, Frank strolled in looking every inch the footballing icon he is. <laughs> As Frank tucks into his favourite grilled chicken and penne arrabbiata, I'm eager to delve deeper into his career. <laughs> so did he not have, did he not have beans with that? <laughs> no, no. So highbrow that they've moved so far away from um, chicken, pasta and beans. Um, that does not sound like a promising um, excerpt to any interview, does it? I mean, I don't know about this sort of thing. You're a features editor, you tell me. Oh, it doesn't sound... I've, I've read worse, let's put it that way. Um, okay. I do quite like the idea. I mean, I think The Athletic... If, if Jamie Redknapp contacted The Athletic and said, I want to interview Frank Lampard, I think we... I mean, we did do an interview with Frank Lampard for Alan Shearer relatively recently. I think we'd commission that, wouldn't we? I kind of think we probably would. I would, anyway. I, I mean, you know. Looking every inch the footballing icon he is that perhaps wouldn't make it possible. Yeah, well, first. we'd edit that out, Adam, wouldn't we? You and I, That's between fine. the two of yeah. us, we'd take that out. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Nice to have a bit of colour. Yeah, you need colour. Michael, little test for you here from another excerpt, which I hope I haven't sent you yet. Hopefully this is just on my document. The RS4 is something else. It's frighteningly fast and has brilliant road holding. Who do you think wrote that? I mean, what, of, of the three that we've, you've mentioned? or No, it could be anybody. Is it another member of the Ramp- uh, Redknapp family by any chance? No. I mean, is it is it Clarkson? <laughs> it does sound like Clarkson. No, not my, not Clarkson's words, Michael. Those are the words of Ryan Giggs <laughs> in Football Icon magazine. He was invited to test drive the new Audi. 
Uh, those don't. <laughs> those just don't sound like words that would have come out of his mouth. Uh, frighteningly fast and has brilliant road holding. This is the sort of content it was offering up. Incredible. Um, so just to reiterate, it had a £6 cover price, which you didn't have to pay if you were famous. And if you weren't famous and you wanted to buy an old copy, a back issue, that would be £15 plus post and packaging. Wow. Incredible. I really hope there is some knocking about. I, I, I would love to read it. Yeah, and despite its very clear business model, um, uh, the last we heard of it, it was around the late 2000s, it had debts of over £300,000. Um, sorry to Icon Magazine, but you want to branch out from fr- uh, Jamie Radnab interviewing Frank Lampard, cast your net a little bit further than that. Um, into more curious territory now, James. First of all, uh, I was watching, once watching a, an episode of Coronation Street and uh, in the cabin, which I believe the local news agent is called, they had a selection of magazines. And uh, I, as I zoomed in closer, I realised that one of them was, I'd say, about the most six out of ten attempt at a generic football magazine I've ever seen. This football magazine was called Your Team. Yes. And the strap line is Britain's biggest football magazine. And uh, on the front cover, £4.50 as well for this. On the front featured things such as world exclusive, this issue. No, no hint <laughs> about what it might be. 2016-17 season preview, 77 interviews, which is that's very a, that precise. That's a lot of interviews. That's a lot of work has gone yeah. into that. And then plus football film retrospective. I would read that. I would read that. It's not, so maybe, it's not terrible, maybe is your it? team is the magazine as after. What, what's a bit bewildering about that image? And I'm looking at the tweet that you tweeted uh, back in 2018. It's the people's friend seems to be next to it, which is a real inexplicably. <laughs> oh, a is real that a magazine. real magazine? Yeah. All oh, right. <laughs> I was going to get that. subtle on that. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Maybe football magazine brands were just, you know, way more protective over the brand. Or were they, James? Well, uh, not not especially. I mean, uh, so I remember Coronation Street getting in contact with 442 to ask whether it could be mentioned by name uh, oh, wow. in an episode, okay. which is just like completely unnecessary. Having seen the clip of it, and, and uh, you had to forgive me because I don't know the characters involved in the conversation. It's basically a woman saying she's buying it for her boyfriend or husband or whatever and saying it, it's, the four, it's 442. There's a feature about Everton in there. But there, there wasn't a piece about Everton in the in the issue. Ironically, oh. I, I had Gabriel Jesus on the cover, who, of course, is a Manchester <laughs> City player in a soap set in Manchester. So, I mean, mm. I don't know if this character had like a long history of being an Everton fan and that couldn't be changed, in which case, fair enough, because we know soaps are super realistic. But I then had to explain to people on Twitter that that mm. issue of the magazine didn't have an Everton story in it, <laughs> just in case people went out and bought the magazine expecting there to be an interview with, I don't know who it would be, Phil Jagielka or whoever. I hope this is in the goof section on IMDb for Coronation oh, Street. It really should be. Very it really should be. If yeah, not, bloody I'm, well I'm going to exactly the sort of thing. We asked our listeners, Michael, uh, to suggest some football magazines they would create in the current media landscape in 2021. Um, varying degrees of success with the answers here, but I'm going to read them out anyway for you. Jonathan Burns says, I think I call a football magazine the postage stamp. Interesting start, with the plot twist being that it's the size of an actual large letter stamp and you would need a telescope to read it. Bit too literal, perhaps? I quite, I quite, yeah, I quite like that idea. I mean, I think that is... A, You'd collect it. Yeah, it'd be a good name for a kind of male-only magazine, right? Postage stamp. Quite like it, yeah. Oh, 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 I thought you meant men only. That's no, a different you magazine, mean male, think, isn't it? No, male. <laughs> I, thought said, I thought you said a male only, as in only for men. This is... No, no, no. Where, no. where is this episode going? Oh, sorry, you mean you mean mailed out only. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah. everybody. Sorry to you too. Um, uh, James, Jay Martin says, False Nine seems like a good name for a 2021 hipster football magazine. Yeah, that's a, that's a coffee table magazine, isn't it? I think that's... Yeah, that's one you're going to pay sort of £28 for once a quarter... 
and he gets some amazing kind of pieces about sort of the Ethiopian second division. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I could see that being quite worthy. Basically, the, mm. the, the kind of the kind of articles that Neil Custis thinks the Athletic do, where's yeah, exactly. actually, where, where's actually exactly. what the Athletic do is write, you know, have a Sheffield Wednesday correspondent, whereas Neil Custis is convinced we write about, you know, yeah. the, the away the away form of the Congo champions or whatever. We're not being nasty here. We we enjoy the joke just as much as anybody else yeah. at the, here at the Athletic. And if, if anything, sometimes we need the ideas. So thanks, Neil. <laughs> if anything. Um, uh, the last, the last suggestion here, which I included just, um, just because I think it reflects a a certain um, strata of football discourse. James uh, Pedro writes in and says he would call his new football magazines either softies or divers weekly. What's he What's he getting at there? I don't, what's this? Is he, oh, is he rugby? Is that what this is? is? Against, no, I think this is an against modern football um, uh, uh, sentiment uh, here. Um, divers weekly. I, I I I checked on Google to see if there was indeed a magazine called Divers Weekly for, yeah, um, you know. Actual divers, no. I mean, they, they probably don't warrant a weekly edition, do they, diving? Yeah, there's only so much. Are there many celebrity divers? How many interviews with Tom Daly are you going to get? Yeah, I this month's somersault. Although, I would, uh, Michael, I suppose it would actually help us find out how to spell Salco when we use it in an exaggerated sense for someone diving in the area. Do you know how to spell Salco? Uh, no. Oh, shame. It's, uh, it's uh, capital S, A-L-C-H-O-W. It's named after an individual who invented the move. So whenever you hear a co-commentator moaning about a striker doing a triple salco in the area, that's how it's spelt. On that note, thank you both for taking this voyage through football magazines. Um, I don't think it didn't feel like too much of a nostalgia trip, did it, James? No, no, it was uh, it was fine. I know people didn't really want to hear me talk about my old job for forty minutes, so I think we did quite well. No, we skirted just the right side of that. Perfect. Thanks, thanks very could, much. Could I, uh, could, I my- could I add one thing about James's old job? Oh God! Mm. Well. Because I've known James relatively well for, for a while now. They have this really good feature in 442 where they ask reader questions to footballers. And a couple of times when James oh, yeah. just wanted to ask a stupid question, he, of- <laughs> he often just put on my name with... Oh, oh my really? Yeah, Michael, Michael from Surbiton asked a lot of questions in those interviews, yeah. yeah. I, I think my favourite one being, um, he asked William Gallas uh, what he thought um, of the decision to move the Eurostar terminal from... Waterloo to St. Andrews, <laughs> which, which Galas uh, responded with, well, actually, it was the same time I moved from Chelsea to Arsenal. So it was actually really convenient. <laughs> oh, all bases covered yeah. there. That's great work by all involved, even if you are misleading the buying public. Mm. Um, but yeah, nice to have some sort of variation from chicken, pasta and beans. Um, Michael, thanks to you two as well. Um, alarming, extensive collection of World Soccer magazines, but do keep it going. Do. Please do. Thank you. And um, thanks to everyone else for listening and see you next week. The Athletic. <laughs>